welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Alexandra Verini. She is Assistant Professor of Medieval Literature at Ashoka University. Her research specialties are gender and religion, and she's currently writing a book on women's utopias. Alexandra, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about your podcast. That's so kind. It's a pleasure to have you. So today you're here to speak about Mirabai. Well, most of my research focuses on women in the Middle Ages, and I'm interested in the kinds of contradictions that exist around women's identities. So there are a lot of rules about what women were supposed to be doing, women weren't supposed to be speaking, women weren't really supposed to be writing, but somehow they did. Somehow we do find writings by women, we do find that they exercised agency. So I've been interested in that kind of contradiction more broadly. And my my book project is about women's utopias and about how women imagined utopian places, even though they were marginalized within canonical utopian texts by Thomas More and Francis Bacon and writers like this. So mysticism is kind of a a subcategory of this larger of this larger concern of mine. How did women do things in the Middle Ages? And the reason for this is that mysticism was one of the few places in which we find women quite assertively exercising a public voice of which the world to some degree approved. The French philosopher Lucie Riguerey has called mysticism the only place in the history of the West in which women speaks and acts so publicly. And the reason for this is that typically women were meant to remain in the private realm, right? Paul the Apostle said that they weren't supposed to preach the word of God. But mysticism complicates this because when women position themselves as channels for God, they then did have a ground to speak about God. They were able to speak publicly and bypass the mandate that they keep quiet. And so they were allowed to have a voice, and this voice often unsettled traditional gender roles. So that's the reason that I originally got interested in mysticism in my doctoral work. I wasn't specifically focusing on mysticism, but I wound up examining a lot of mystics in my search for women's utopian visions because mysticism is one prominent site of medieval women's writings. And then when I moved to India in 2018, I became even more interested in mysticism because I started to notice parallels between the medieval European women I had been studying and women who lived in South Asia at around the same time. What kind of parallels? A lot of this came up through my teaching, actually, because I don't have a South Asian scholarship background at all. But when I was teaching people like Marjorie Kemp, have you had someone speak about her? Yes, actually. Episode Episode 8 was about Marjorie Kemp, and spoiler alert, we're actually going to have another episode come out about her in November. Oh, wonderful. So people know who she is. I can just briefly remind listeners that she was a married woman in England and a mother of 14 children, and she started having visions of Christ, which caused her to demand of her husband that they embark on a chaste marriage, and she went on pilgrimage and fasted and did various religious things that typically she wouldn't have done as a married woman, and this was all sanctioned by God. So when students in my classes read a text like the Book of Marjorie Kemp, they would often notice that some of the women saints that they were familiar with had similar life stories, similar stories of forsaking a worldly marriage and devoting 
herself to God. Indian women saints often defy gender norms in a way that is that was familiar. They often use mysticism and use an intimacy with God as a way to step out of traditional womanly roles, out of the domestic sphere. Even the the level of eroticism, the ways in which Indian women saints, especially Mirabai, who I'm going to talk about today, would engage in eroticized encounters with God also resonated with what I was familiar with from medieval women mystics like Marjorie Kemp, like Catherine of Siena, like Julian of Norwich. So all of these things made me put European medieval women mystics and South Asian women mystics into conversation with each other. Not to say that there's any direct or provable pattern of influence, but I think that in both cases, these are societies where women were, like I said earlier, denied a public voice and where women were vastly restricted within traditional religious life. So I think that the ways in which they then claimed voices, that they claimed relationships with the divine, wind up looking a bit similar. I love that this revelation stemmed from conversations with your students and them actually finding late medieval mysticism relevant. Did you find Mirabai in a similar fashion through your students? Yes. Yeah, exactly. She's probably the most famous Indian woman saint outside of India, but I only really knew her by name. But when I was teaching Marjorie Kemp, some of my students brought her up and I had one student in particular who wanted to give a presentation on her. And so I wound up then reading more and I was presenting that year at a conference in Bangor called um, uh, Internationally Speaking. And so I decided to write a paper where I compared Mirabai and Marjorie Kemp. And so I wound up doing a lot of research for that. And that's how I learned more about her. So you've presented on her before, and now you're presenting her to us. So who is Mirabai? What do we know about her? So something that's different from the mystics that I did my PhD research work on is that Mirabai's life is known much more through oral tradition than through a sort of particular singular text or biography. And I can speak more about that later, but just to give a rough biography, she's said to have been born in around 1498 in Rajasthan, which is a state in the northwest of India. And she is known to have been devoted to the god Krishna, who's an avatar of Vishnu, from a very early age. There's a story about how when she was a child and she was part of an aristocratic family, she saw a statue of Krishna, which a holy man had brought to her house. And she insisted to her mother that she was married to that statue. And so there's the idea that she was devoted to Krishna from even before she reached adulthood. But she was, she was married in an arranged marriage, as many women were to a king from the royal family of an area called Mewar. Some people think that this was a guy named Bozraj. There's a lot of speculation about that. Scholars have looked at chronicles. So that's one name that's thrown out, not a definite one. And the story goes that when she arrived at her mother-in-law's house, she refused to bow her head to her mother-in-law, which Hindu custom prescribes, because she was already married. So she was already married to Krishna. And so she didn't really see her husband, her worldly husband, 
as her actual husband. And soon after her marriage, her husband died in battle. And at this point, Mira rebelled even more. So she refused to act as a conventional widow and commit sati, which is a historical Hindu practice in which women sacrifice themselves by sitting on top of their deceased husband's funeral pyres. And instead of doing this, Mira engaged in all kinds of unruly behavior. She danced, she sang loudly, she hung out with holy men, which generally as a woman she was not supposed to do. She traveled around on pilgrimage, again as a woman she wasn't supposed to do that on her own. There are various stories about her sneaking out at night from her in-law's palace to meet with holy men. And as a reaction, legend has it and her poems describe how her brother-in-law tried to poison her to prevent her from embarrassing his family. There is a story that he sent poison in the guise of a sort of liquid offering to the god Krishna. But when she drank it, the poison turns into a sort of healing liquid instead. And she actually becomes healthier and happier. So there's a a miracle here, essentially. And even, even her singing improves after drinking this poison. And as her life continues, she gathers more acclaim. She travels to different holy sites, seeking sort of places associated with the god Krishna. She travels to his birthplace, Vrindavan. There's a legend that probably can't be historically accurate because of the timeline, but there is a legend that she met the Emperor Akbar and that that he came to visit her and was so moved by her songs that he gave her a pearl necklace. This seems unlikely because actually Akbar's life is earlier than Mira's, but this is one of the legends associated with her. And her death is equally fantastic. The legend has it that in 1547, she went on a pilgrimage to a place called Dwarka, a town on the west coast of India which is another holy site associated with Krishna. And she one day is worshiping in front of a statue of Krishna in a temple. And during her prayers, her body actually disappears and joins with his leaving only the fabric of her sari wrapped around the statue. So that's uh, basically the key points of her life. She sounds fantastic. And I love the fact that she was like, I was never married to you in the first place, so there is no reason for me to behave at any point as though I was. Yeah, she's a very great rebellious woman. And really what this does is it allows her to do things that would typically not be proper behavior for a wife. You know, she wants to like go around and and then she doesn't have to behave as a widow when her husband dies because she was never married to him in the first place. So it is quite extraordinary. And as an added bonus, it got her out of having to sacrifice herself. So wins all around. Yeah. And something that's interesting is the way that oral tradition works in bhakti, which is the devotional movement that she's part of, is that songs were composed probably for you know hundreds of years, songs about her life. And they're all attributed to her, but this is kind of a growing oral tradition to which probably different poets added over time. But all of these poems sort of circle around, many of these poems at least, circle around these key moments in her life that emphasize her rebellion from traditional gender norms, the way in which she struck out this intimate bond with God apart from her uh, husband's family. So with this kind of oral living tradition where people are adding to it and 
potentially altering it and there's contradictions in the story and obviously some of it is quite distanced from when she was actually alive. How do you negotiate that and then create an identity for this mystical woman? What is probably most useful is not to think of someone like Mirabai as a single historical person, but as an idea that's been important to lots of different groups of people. And I think that's how scholars who worked on her, um, Nancy Martin and Jack Hawley are two very prominent scholars who've worked on her. That's how they talk about her, which makes a lot of sense to me, because when an oral tradition builds like that in there, there are hagiographical accounts of her that were written after her lifetime. But actually, most of the poems written in her voice using her signature were written a couple of hundred years after her supposed life. So I think it's probably more useful to think about what kind of work this idea of a woman rebelling against all kinds of norms and engaging in this eroticized, at once intimate and sometimes destructive relationship with Krishna, what, what kind of work this idea does and why different groups of people would be attracted to it. I mean, I'm struck in her poems by the ways in which she's talking often about her relationship with Krishna, but this could be about any relationship of love and loss, any kind of human bond, um, and the sort of really vibrant emotion of her poems. And I think that this really has spoken to people across centuries, and that's why she remains so popular. And she, as I mentioned, she's really one of the few Indian saints who's well-known outside of India. Um, there have been 10 films about her life, a television series about her life, a comic series about her life produced for children. And there was a festival in Los Angeles based on her songs. So she really has received quite wide acclaim for a 16th century mystic. That's amazing. And I talked with another guest on a previous episode, actually, about Bernard of Clairvaux and how we thought he deserved a feature film. And it's really nice to see a medieval mystic getting that kind of popular culture attention. Yeah, she definitely has gotten that attention and more. There have been lots of reimagining. And I think this is a difference from some medieval European mystics that people still perform her songs. I've had students who talk about stories that their family tell about Mirabai. So she's still quite a living presence. So picking up on the idea of Mirabai as a concept, as an idea that gets used, oftentimes with medieval mystics, we have a theme that runs through their work or a certain kind of guiding principle, something they're trying to inspire other people towards. Do we have that in Mirabai's case, or is it more about this personal, intimate relationship that she has with Krishna? It's a good question. I mean, I don't see with her a kind of moral imperative. I don't see her trying to get people to behave a certain way. I mean, so for her, really, the goal is to pursue her marriage to Krishna and achieve union with Krishna, which is a kind of symbol for union with the divine more divine more broadly. So the bhakti movement, which I mentioned earlier, was a movement across India that started in probably the south of India in the 5th or 6th century and consisted of a really wide array of mystics who were often women and often lower caste, so, so not people who were part of the more priestly group. 
so in a sense it was quite a democratizing movement and the goal of that movement more or less was to enable people to establish an intimate relationship with the divine so in a way she models that possibility uh the possibility of becoming one with god in this case krishna i could read one of her poems to give an idea yes please do that would be great so there's one and this is from a volume that's been translated by robert bly and jade hirschfield these aren't so much direct translations from indian language works but they're sort of versions of these poems so they're a bit free reign but they have really great energy and they are very fun to read so i'll just read a very short one in my dreams the great one married me four thousand people came to the wedding my bridegroom was the lord Brajana, and in the dream all the doorways were made royal and he held my hand in my dream he married me and fortune came to me mirabai has found the great snake Girdhan. she must have done something good in an earlier life so all these different, the Great One, Lord Rajanath, and the Great Snake are all names for Krishna. So essentially here she's celebrating this dream she's had of her marriage to Krishna. And so there is a bit of a sense of she must have done something good in an earlier life. But I think that the poem's main emphasis is on celebrating this union and potentially allowing people singing her songs, these songs then were sung by people long after her lifetime, allowing singers to imagine such a union as well. So is her poetry focused on the beauty and joy of this relationship with the divine? Much of it is, but often, and I think maybe this is also familiar from European mysticism, there's often a sense of um, the dream of being married to God, but never quite getting there. So on the one hand, there are songs about about marriage to Krishna, uh, about sort of ecstatic union with him, but there are also songs about loss and about separation. So there's this sort of pendulum-like effect. I mean, and it's hard, like I said, because of the oral tradition, it's not really possible for me to read these poems in a very temporal way. There are some that were written much closer to her supposed lifetime and some written centuries after but in the kind of whole of the poems there is a kind of vacillation between ecstatic union and imagining herself married to krishna and then also kind of rage and sadness and even madness as a reaction of separation from krishna so there's there's another poem i can read that's also fairly short she says oh friends i am mad with love and no one sees my mattress's thorns is nails. The beloved spreads open his bedding elsewhere. How can I sleep? Abandonment scorches my heart. Only those who have felt the knife can measure the wound's deepness. Only the jeweler knows the nature of the lost jewel. I have lost him. Anguish takes me from door to door, but no doctor answers. Mira calls her lord, O oh dark one, only you can heal this pain. So here she's lost her beloved. He's gone to someone else's bed. And she's devastated. She's going mad. Anguish is taking over. And she's calling on Krishna to come heal her pain. So there is, coupled with this joy at marriage, a grief at loss. So it's a kind of two-sided or two-faced relationship. So the poetry runs the full gamut of relationship emotions, which is great and realistic. But does she give any sort of reasoning behind this abandonment? 
why has Krishna abandoned her? Well, Krishna, I don't know if you know, Krishna's known for being kind of promiscuous. Like, he had a wife, Radha, but he spends time hanging out with the gopis, these cowherds. So he's known for sort of running around with different women. So I do think part of this sense of abandonment is sort of flagging Krishna's typical promiscuous nature. Again, if we think of this marriage, this sort of loving and longing as a metaphor for a relationship with God, it makes sense because while one is on earth, in this line of thinking, one can never fully be united with the divine. So the ecstatic union can really only come with nirvana, you know, after death. And so I think some of this push and pull maybe isn't only about the lover Krishna, but also about the kind of inaccessibility of the divine while still being alive on earth. I like that. And I can definitely see what you were saying about the connections between Western Christian medieval mystics and mystics like Mirabai. I think there's a lot more to do there. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really I, I was really struck by her in particular. There are other Indian saints who exhibit some similar characteristics, but this intense love, some of these heightened emotions really remind me of Marjorie. Mira's sort of often crying, um, reminds me of Marjorie's weeping. And yeah, this sort of erotic, ecstatic union reminds me, you know, of someone like Teresa of Avila or bridal mysticism, Catherine of Siena. Uh, yeah, so I think there are a lot of really interesting parallels. And again, it's it's interesting to observe these because it's not as if there's a direct line of influence. Mira lived slightly later, lived about 100 years later from someone like Marjorie Kemp, and I don't think there's any evidence that she would be even vaguely familiar that such women existed and vice versa. But I think that because of the similar position of women in both societies, women who were claiming an intimate relationship with God wound up doing so, often by using marriage as a way to do so by positioning themselves in intimate erotic relationships with the divine. Does Mirabai feature at all in the work that you do on utopias? Uh, she has not, because that's actually based on my doctoral work, um, which was on women in England. But utopia generally challenges the status quo, right? It prompts us to think about a future that critiques the here and now, critiques the norms of the present, shows us how flawed contemporary governments and economic systems and gender norms are. And there is something similar that Mira is doing in kind of claiming her own relationship with Krishna. She's casting aside the world and she's casting aside the worldly role that she's been allotted in life as the wife of this prince and then the widow of this prince and claiming something different. So there is something utopian in that too, I think. Well, that sounds like another really interesting avenue to follow up on. I want to return for a moment actually to her life. So you mentioned that her brother-in-law tried to poison her and that she was quite disrespectful to her mother-in-law. Do we have other instances of maybe her husband being unhappy with this inappropriate, sometimes disrespectful behavior that didn't really acknowledge him as her husband? Or was she considered controversial by other people during her lifetime? How scandalous was she? So it seems like, according to legends about her life, that he didn't really push back, that he was actually only alive for a very short time in the marriage, and there's no sense that they had children. It seems like it was mostly his family 
sometimes her brother-in-law, sometimes her father-in-law, I believe this actually shifts over time a bit, that she was more persecuted by them. And um, again, her brother-in-law tried to poison her. They pursued her when she went off on pilgrimage. So it seems like it was more by her in-laws that her behavior was policed. There also, there is some research that suggests that her songs were considered subversive in Rajasthan, the state where she came from until quite recently, because of the ways, not not just the ways that she unsettles gender norms, but also because she spent time with lower caste holy men, and that was seen as sort of disrupting caste hierarchies. So there is some research on the more recent reception of her songs that suggests that they were considered subversive up until the 19th century. It is so interesting to find a medieval mystic and a medieval woman with such a lasting, tangible legacy in the world outside of scholarship. Thank you so much for sharing her with us today. Um, We are coming to the end, which means we have the one final question. You've shared a lot about Mirabai today, and she's obviously incredibly interesting. But what is it about her that you find so fascinating? I think it's actually her poetry. I think I find her poetry feels so present and so alive. Again, it's about her relationship with Krishna, but it's really sort of about being alive and about being attached to things in the world and about the pain of losing those things. And it's about a woman who feels like she's being ignored sometimes, a woman who's excited about things. So I really think it's the energy of her poetry that I like the most and the way that she's still, like I said earlier, such a living figure that people have pictures of and statues of and watch films about. So yeah, I guess her living presence is what attracts me most. That is so great. And I think it's something that we're really missing with the Western Christian mystics of this legacy, these important, interesting, fantastical figures that it seems like Christianity kind of wants to sweep under the rug and pretend aren't really part of their history because they are really hard to believe. But I feel like it's such a missed opportunity. They're so much fun. Yeah, I was brought up Catholic, but I didn't really come into contact with any of the medieval mystics that I later worked on. Even someone like Teresa of Avila or Catherine of Siena, like actual saints, were not a major part of my education. I think because, like you're saying, they're considered sort of fantastical and so not logical, and so let's sort of put them away because they're less convincing. It almost seems like they're burying the lead here. Why wouldn't you start with the weirdest, most fun stuff? I know. Well, ironically, that's actually, you know, I'm not um, a practicing Catholic, but I was really interested in saints, and I was really interested in, in saints' miracles. So that's actually the part that attracted me the most in the end. And they are the part that has kept you fascinated and engaged with this topic. So they're obviously so worth studying. Hopefully, we are now introducing some more listeners to Mirabai, and future episodes will introduce people to even more mystics, and we can just get these people out front and center. I hope so. I think I've loved the episodes that I've listened to of your podcast, and they've introduced me to some new people as well, which has been exciting. 
Thank you. And yeah, one of my favorite parts about doing this is that I get introduced to fascinating new mystics like Mirabai. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about this wonderful, subversive woman. Thank you so much for having me, AJ. It was really great to get to share my enthusiasm. Well, your enthusiasm was infectious, so thank you for sharing it. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic, and join me next time when I speak to Hannah Johnson about Mechtild von Magdeburg. Music